My top five podcasters, Chris, 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 Chris Lambert, and probably myself, but this ain't about that. The mundane festival is where you at. If you've been tapped in, you know what's up. If you're a first timer, hey, welcome to the club. The cost of admission is simply a subscription. Then rating and reviewing it wherever you listen. Don't worry about change ups, the cast won't break up. Even with that million dollar contract, show up a stand up guy who's a stand up comedian with a stance on everything from food to media. So, welcome to the show. Please take your seat. Let's find out what he's got in store this week. Who, me? I'm Don. Will you open the app? Thanks for coming out. Please clap. The Mundane Festival with your host, Chris Lambert. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another edition of the Mundane Festival podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lambert. Recording this episode for Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. Remember, as always, you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast listening apparatus. If you're really into this thing, go over to Apple Podcasts. Give this show a five-star review. Let everybody know why you like it, because it's simply the right thing to do. And if you would like to take your love and appreciation of this show to an even deeper level, Go over to patreon.com slash mundane festival, subscribe three bucks a month for hours and hours and hours of bonus content. This is episode 637. I'm not alone. I have a super special return guest that you know and you love. He has an album out everywhere. It was on Sirius. It was on uh, Sirius XM and satellite radio, but now it's available to you wherever you listen to music and comedy. His album is called Live In Between Albums. And the author, the performer, the man behind that, we have him here today, Mr. Mike Kaplan. How are you, sir? Thank you so much for having me back. Uh, it was a, a thrill to be here once and now even more so. So uh, thank you for having me. Yes, and thank you for being here, which means that most of my work I don't have to do. I don't have to do a solo episode where I spew my thoughts out into an abyss and we can just share our time spewing our thoughts out into the abyss. Yeah. We're each the abyss for each other. We're co abysses. There we go. There we go. So how have you been, man? It's been, it's been three years since you were on the pod. I don't think I've, I don't think I've seen you in person until we since COVID until we did um, stick a pole in it a Mm -hmm. few weeks back. I think that's right. So here's everything I did in the past three years until then. Uh, (laughs) uh, Well, I'll start now. Uh, Just right now, uh, as we record this, my girlfriend and I live in Park Slope, Brooklyn, but not for long, we just found out. Uh, At least uh, not for long in this very building that we're in right now because our landlord let us know last night that uh, he needs to do extensive work that will make the whole building uninhabitable for a year. So in two months, we are going to be nomads. And uh, that fits my, I think that fits my attitude pretty well. Uh, I'm very often not mad. So a nomad, that's me. Um, I'm I'm more of a yes glad, you know, just a wandering yes glad. But uh, 
uh, for the last three years, we've been happily living in this building that I've lived in. Uh, we've been in this apartment since 2019, in another build, uh, room in the building since 2015. Uh, that's when I moved in here. And uh, so it's kind of, you know, the uh, it's here's a, a quote I, I learned very recently and I'm applying vigorously every day. I believe it's G.K. Chesterton is the fella's name. And he said, uh, an adventure is just an inconvenience rightly considered and an inconvenience oh. is just an adventure wrongly considered so we're about to be on an adventure and we've been on an adventure you know you ever have those things where like whatever the thing is of the day or the moment or the week that's like oh like this this bill from the doctor that i, I yes. thought i paid this bill i thought wait I, isn't the insurance supposed to like there was a thing over the past year or two where I got charged for something I wasn't supposed to be. And every time I talk to somebody, they're like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll take care of that. And then the next month I get another bill. And right. I'm, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we we see what happened. Somebody said they'd take care of it, but they didn't. And then we won't either. But now <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah, how about uh, at least I, for that whole time, I had an apartment, a home, uh, you know, shelter, uh -huh. a place that we called our own. And now that with that so number one, this helps me appreciate like how how little my mom says sometimes I don't know where she got this maybe like Ann Landers or Dear Abby like some challenges in life are a lump in the oatmeal and some are a lump in the breast and huh. you know I'm not even saying that like there's definitely sure. people out there with legit real lumps in their breasts and the equivalent you know medical challenges like my mom actually just had. Uh, surgery and had things biopsied and great news came in in the past week that everything is benign. So my mom Good. is healthy, uh, all lumps in oatmeal only or uh, benign lumps everywhere right. else. And and so that was great news to get. And this, you know, they say that a move psychologically is like a death, but also it is not a death. We are alive. We are happy to be alive. And so it helps me reframe and recontextualize like oh yeah i would be happy to be on the phone again with the insurance company trying to let them know that i am not supposed to pay them what they think i'm supposed to pay them as opposed to being like where am i gonna live in right. three months and uh and also though even right now that this is sort of the all-encompassing thing that uh has been going on in our lives just for the past day uh, when we found out, I'm like, it kind of makes most other challenges like seem lesser, like truly I had the thought like, oh no, I also forgot to post to TikTok yesterday. I'm like, that'll be okay. You know, that's, <laughs> I've been trying to post on a more regular basis because it's, uh, people like they say the algorithm likes it if you do it. And I'm like, well, you know what? Sometimes I like it when I don't do it. So that actually is uh, a valuable, valid thing. But uh, yeah, so we talked during COVID and then things and which is still currently COVID exists. Sure. But also we talked during the lockdown and things are now right. unlocked. And I've been, you know, happy to be out on the road as safely and healthily as possible. Uh, I'm going to bring the new hour that I'm doing to the Edinburgh Fringe Fest this August, and that's super exciting. My girlfriend and I went 
in 2018. So I've been getting that hour in shape uh, for years now, and I've got new material and new hours that are brewing that I'm excited about as well. And so getting to tour, getting to go all over the country and visit like Rini. Rini's my girlfriend. Her family lives in Kansas City. So we visited them pretty frequently. We've taken lots of road trips, like more road trips than flights uh, down to Florida, out to Chicago and Minneapolis and Kansas City and up to Boston. And uh, yeah, I've just I'm I'm glad to be able to travel again. I love doing comedy and uh, and I don't know where I'm going to live uh, very soon. Man, that, that was a lot. That was uh, but all that stuff is relative, though. Your issues and problems is relative to you. And yeah, uh, I literally just took care of one of those medical bills uh, yesterday. I got the cause. What is this? I was like, okay, I'll 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 pay for it. Just get out of my face. Stop sending me these invoices. Even though I did think that my insurance was supposed to take care of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, yeah. oh, go ahead. Oh no, please continue. I was just gonna say, with regards to your your housing situation, I was just watching this incredible movie last night called uh, A Thousand and One, and it's basically the story of a mother and son that takes place over. 15 years in Harlem and it starts in the the mid nineties to about 2006 or so. And towards the end, towards the end, they're, they're in Harlem and it's around the time that gentrification is starting. Their apartments are kind of, the apartments falling apart a little bit and the new owner comes in. It's like, yeah, we'll fix all this for you. I'm going to take care of all this for you. And then the next time you see that character of the landlord, he's like, yeah, we're going to have to fix this. And, you know, stuff keeps breaking down and uh, this place is going to be uninhabitable for like ever. So you have to move. And granted, it's more of a dire situation than you're in. But I literally just thought of that where he's maybe he's angling to do something else or to try to get more out of his uh, place than than you and everybody else has given him, I guess. It could be. I mean, it does seem I believe I believe that he would rather not have to have his place empty for a year. Uh-huh. You know, like we he told us he was going to have to come in and like drill in the wall and do something to yeah. get things up to code. But he found out by by what he tells us that it is a larger uh, process than that. And regardless, if, if he wants more, if, it, if it's yeah. going to cost more to live here in a year, well, we'll have found something somewhere uh, that is either. Uh, hopefully the same quality uh, for the same deal, but maybe a little farther away or farther mm-hmm. from a train or what, you know, there's, we live in New York city, uh, right. one of the most expensive places. And right. uh, we know, you know, we know people who live in other boroughs who play, who pay, you know, like hardly uh, anything uh, close to what we pay. And we're, you know, and we're not, uh, we're not fancy schmancy, you know, like we, we'd like to live somewhere affordable and affordable right. is relative as well. Sure. And, you know, I'm grateful that my mother lives in New Jersey and she's like, you could stay with me for, uh, whatever time that you need to. And Rini's mom in Kansas city is like, you know, if you need to come out here, you can do that. And like, we have, uh, you know, friends, we have, uh, I just talked to a friend on the phone who lives in, uh, I forget Dutchess County, I think, you know, north of Westchester, like two hours from the city. And they have a guest room that they have generously offered us for the time that uh, a time that we might need. And so it's really, you know, it's very valuable 
to have friends and loved ones who uh especially friends and loved ones who have spare rooms that's really nice <laughs> yeah. uh that's you want that's what you want which i'm actually really grateful you know whenever i go out to la which i used to before the pandemic go like a few times a year like three four times a year and i truly it's fascinating how i think i started going out there in like 2010 give or take uh <laughs> And I like I did last comic standing in 2010. So I went out there pretty regularly then. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. I go out and I do shows and I see friends and I you know, take meetings if there are meetings to take and do TV if I can. And I remember in the beginning, you know, I was uh, trying to save money as much as I could. And so I would uh, reach out like what? Hey, friends, like who has who has a, a couch? Like truly, I slept on a good number of couches. Uh, and until a time when a friend was like, I, I got a spare room. I'm like spare. And now I have so many friends that have spare rooms to spare that like there, if I wanted to, I feel like I could live in Los Angeles for a year without, uh, putting too many of my friends out for too long because I have friends who are, I'm in my forties now. And a lot of my friends have grown up jobs and partners and, you yeah. know, 401ks and like real, you know, play, like you go in there and you're like, Oh, like, should I take my shoes off? Like a lot, a lot of houses where I'm like, should I not even come in here? But, uh, yeah. so I'm very grateful that I have so many, uh, people in my life who care about me and who uh, have space for me and my girlfriend, sure. if need. That's great, man. Where where in Jersey is your mom? What town is your mom in? My mom's in Allendale, New Jersey. Oh, is that that's Bergen County, right? It is Bergen County. Oh, that's up the street from me. I'm in Hackensack. I, oh, sure. I I like to go to the. Acme grocery store up there. It's really nice. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a, uh she she loves the Acme. Yeah, that's a good store. And they yeah. She yeah, also I likes just, the the Stu Leonard's at the uh I think it's the Paramus Park Mall. Yeah. It's very good. Yeah. It's it's that's one of those places where you know you you there's certain things that you buy there. I wouldn't necessarily do all of my shopping there, but their meat, their meat is pretty good. Like if they they have like a barbecue section, uh, you're you're a vegan, but uh, it's but true. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Get you wouldn't meat, be probably. There. Yeah. You'd probably enjoy their produce though. But it's a very oh, yeah. nice. It's a very nice. Um, it's kind of like a farmer's. I forget what they like a farmer's markety type. Sure. Store. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I like it. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, businesses in that area, I don't know if you are mourning the loss of the Route 17 Barnes and Noble as we are. Uh, they're going to open somewhere else, they said. But there was yeah. one like right on 17. Yes. Uh, I think South uh -huh. and uh, in Paramus. And it was the best thing about it. I'd never seen this anywhere else in the back. There was like a legit used bookstore section like. Huh. Not just, know you know, you know, like remainder for cheaper, but like people would bring their book and I got, I've gotten some great, some great books. I mean, obviously you can get, you can get used books a lot of places, but right. it was just such a rare, it's such a, it's such an interesting thing. I'm like, oh no, where am I going to go for used books now? Any other used bookstore that I love or online as, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I, it was a nice thing. Like whenever I'd visit my mom, we would often go to that Barnes and Noble and yeah. 
look in the back. They'd have like color coded discounts. They're like, if it has a yellow sticker, you know, it's 50% off. If it has a red sticker, it's 75% off. A green sticker, and it's only a dollar, you know? Uh, so. I've been there a few times. There's there's one further down in the uh, in the mall in Hackens at the Riverside yes. Mall across the highway from me. That's that's more. It's one of those. I wouldn't say swanky, but it's not. It's it's uh, that's like an upscale mall. I go there a lot because I love going to the movie theater there. But I've gotten a few things from them, uh, or and if I didn't order it from Amazon or. But yeah, the the last time I did kind of did a book binge was when I was in Saratoga. I was doing a, some gigs out there, and I did go to one of those old school brick and mortar mm-hmm. Barnes and Nobles. And it was it's yeah, it's sad that a lot of those places are dying out now. Although in Jersey, we the, before the I don't, have you ever been to the um what the heck is the name of that big mall that they the American Dream? Have you ever been in there? I have not. I haven't either. But but prior to that, the Garden State Mall was the the largest mall in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and uh, other places around the country, malls seem to be dying, but not the Garden State Mall. So people <laughs> people are still there. It's I I like that. I like to see people around, you know, as much as I can. But I also like to avoid them. But you still. I felt this way even before COVID. I mean, COVID's made me more aware of it. Just the fact that you kind of want to see the hustle and bustle of people a little bit. You know what I mean? You like to see people going out and and doing stuff, you know, especially we as comedians, but. Oh yeah. In In New York during, you know, the lockdown, like when I'd be on the street and it was like a ghost town, it was, Mm -hmm. uh, it was disconcerting. So yeah, yeah, I like, I understand your, desire to you want to have people around to avoid yes exactly exactly because uh actually did that yesterday to go to the movies the the garden state mall has not updated the amc at the garden state they haven't updated their uh uh seating most Mm -hmm. most amcs that you go to well not most of them but they have reclining seats the nice seats there's one in ridgefield park that's maybe 15 minutes away that's a, for me, that's nicer. The seats are nicer. So I'll go anyway. Yeah. Just, it's kind of to, to answer your question, it's kind of sad to see some of these stores, uh, dying out. And, uh, cause I used to like a best buy that's kind of dying out. You go in there. I went in there last week when I was back home in Maryland and there was nobody there. It was like hardly anybody mm-hmm. there. You could, you know, well, but on the plus side, I uh, I've it's really weird. I've been living, you know, in Park Slope since around 2008. Okay. And it was only I'd say in the past couple years that I started uh, availing myself of the library, which mm. is you know a bustling hub, and like you know the the New York Library system is even different than like the Brooklyn Library system, and the Brooklyn Library system has uh, they have a lot of books. They yeah. got and you, you can get ebooks, you can get them right yeah. immediately. It's like I'm I'm a person who has bought a lot of books in my life, yeah. and I still do. I I like I do like a used bookstore because. Sometimes you don't know what you're looking for or you're, you know, you find something surprising, but for things that you know what they are and you know where you, what you want, 
like I just read a book. I just finished a book this morning that I got from the library and it's called I'm Glad My Mom Died. Do you know about this I book? read that. Well, I, yeah. I had Jeanette McCurdy read it to me. Mm-hmm. Uh that was that was something. I really did like that. It it was like, I mean, I don't know what the equivalent would be for an audiobook, a page turner. Absolutely. Yeah. Like just I mean, I also I wonder. I guess there's still the chapters when you're listening to it. She'll as well. say chapter four or whatever. It, that was, I think that might've been, I, I did Quinta Brunson's, but I think that Jeanette McCurdy was my first foray into that. So I, cause I could listen to it while I was at work and it, it was, it was very good. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, like a, you know, heartbreaking and also, you know, uh, hero's journey of a sort like i'm glad oh glad reading the whole thing that like she's writing it so we know she's uh Mm -hmm. she know she's doing better than she was yeah uh right but like it there were so many like fascinating like twists and turns and character like there was a lot there was so much and it was like an easy smooth read that was just i felt like it was well written artistically written but also like very simply written like Mm -hmm. simple but not but yeah it was simple and complex it was just uh hugely recommended very heavy and intense at times it was of course yeah it's because i'm fascinated by that the child stardom and how they come out of it if they don't if what's what's like her relation how it affected her relationship with men and it was just really, um, yeah, it's really heartbreaking, but she got on the other side of it. It, it reminds me when I went to see, God, I, this I had to be maybe 2000, maybe 2011 or 12. Mark Marin had, he was recording whatever his album was, This Has to Be Funny. Yeah. And he recorded it at Union Hall. And um, I saw, I saw that moment that's, captured on the album when he was talk, talk telling a joke about his mother uh telling she his mother saying i don't know i don't really remember if i knew how to love you and he said oh wow i i gotta write that down because the whole bit there was kind of like a through line of where he would write stuff down when he was visiting his oh, uh, yeah. parents and i was like oh my god and and then somebody somebody made this audible noise saying, "Oh my God, that was so." Oh, he's like, "No, no, 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 don't do that. This has to be funny because there's a level I've gotten past past it enough to tell this bit, to tell this joke." So oh, it was yeah. kind of and and I did talk to him. I got to open for him um, a couple years after that, and uh, I, I talked to him about it. But that was really that, that was just like a profound moment. And be me being a, a young comic, just saying, oh, yeah, you have to have some distance behind the trauma that you face in order to comment on it and to just kind of speak uh, rationally about it. And, oh, yeah. You know, uh, do you know Brene Brown? Have you read no. or uh, no. Brene Brown? She is uh, fantastic. She's written a numerous books. Uh, she has. Uh, a Netflix special and okay. maybe the most popular Ted talk of all time. She okay. is a shame researcher. She is a scientist and, and a storyteller. So she's like, her work is really like accessible and like researched. And uh, specifically, I remember some uh, to the point that you're making 
yeah, mm-hmm. that's her there. Okay. Uh, someone uh, asked her a question because she sometimes shares stories from her own personal life and her own, like she's researching about shame and vulnerability and telling stories about it. Mm-hmm. And and like kind of, you know, the moral of her stories are often like it's good to remove your armor and be vulnerable and show up as who you are and, you know, commune with other people directly and like share yourself uh, authentically. And right. she's also like, I have a very difficult time doing that. And so she shares, you know, her challenges and her journey. And so somebody asks her, like, for the stories that you tell about, like, you know, you and one of your family members or something that mm-hmm. you, you like, she, she was asked, like, how do you determine, like, what story is, like, okay to tell on stage? Or are there ones that, like, are not, you know, not ready or that you'll never tell? Yeah. And she says something like, I'll, I'll only talk about a story from my life after it has been, like, fully processed in my life. She's like, yeah. I, I won't talk about a thing. Like, I won't tell you, like, here's what happened yesterday and I hope it works out, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, which I yeah. do think that Marin used to do. And I think mm-hmm. he has, you know, like grown a ton. Like, I feel like I remember when he got divorced one of the times he did like a one man show mm-hmm. about it. And I feel like I remember reading like interviews with him where he was like, sometimes like just still feeling the raw emotion that he was like mining like he's like mining things out of himself as he's doing it and like ultimately the yeah the determination is like yeah uh therapy is good and processing trauma is good and uh doing it in real time in front of an audience might not be the move right right yeah, that I think that's a that's a thing. I mean, I think that's kind of what came up with Chris Rock uh, with his his special. You know, there's, there's, there was a lot. I haven't talked about it on the pod uh, because I've been doing a, a a Last of Us recap show for the mm. past ten maybe ten weeks, and and the current week's episode is is sort of me talking to my buddy Tim Hall about stuff. So that was like the first normal. So this will you and I will be the 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 second normal pod that we've done but i just as someone who's seen the i saw his hour at the borgata um uh, almost a year ago and and it was right after the slap because I, I happened to be working at the borgata and he was playing the main event center and i just i was just thinking he's not going to talk about it yet and i was like oh this is a good set but that last 10 minutes so people say oh it's been a year the people who were his dissenters were like oh it's been a year Oh, get over it. But it's like uh, a year's not that long. It's not that long of a time. And then just the way his delivery uh, of that last chunk was just kind of like you could still see that it it had affected him and it, he still had this real visceral reaction. It'd be interesting to see how it is if he were to talk about it, if he chose to do it, you know, another year from now or a year later, what 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 that would be but then mm. he is he that guy which a lot of people have been kind of saying is he that guy that's really going to show that vulnerability like a mark Marin would show because mark Marin would be often telling too much or you know he would he's like almost in that almost in that vein of prior where everything is is to be dissected almost you know 
Yeah, uh, that, that would be a really a funny, interesting thing to do for every year for the rest of his career uh, to do like like the movie Boyhood or like any of the uh, <laughs> Richard Linklater movies. Boyhood, uh, the slap. Yeah, the boyhood, the slaphood. Uh, that would be. I mean, oh man, truly, like you know, I don't know if you read. Did you read Roxanne Gay's piece about Chris Rock's special? I did, and I I didn't. Well, it was kind of like mm, I didn't. I remember not liking it all the way. Fair. I mean, I I as a a white man uh, on the outside of all of this uh, mm-hmm. in some ways, like with you know Roxanne Gay, a black woman, yeah. you a black man, Chris a black man. <laughs> like there are dynamics involved. Let me yeah. share my take on this. Uh, I you know what's been missing in all of this? Uh, my new Edinburgh one hour fringe one man show uh, is actually all about Chris Rock's The Slap, and uh, so it's you and Marlon Wayans. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I like Roxanne Gay's work a lot. And, you know, I think I think the beautiful thing about, you know, the beautiful thing about free speech and the beautiful mm-hmm. thing about comedy and and art in general is that everyone gets to have their own perspective and share their own perspective. And it's really interesting because I think, you know, so many of I've said this. I wonder if I've I wonder if in the hours that we've spoken, this came up like I sometimes think about uh, Patrice O'Neill and Mike Birbiglia in this Mm. way uh, that like, I mean, clearly both uh, fantastic comedians and uh, on the subject of like women, I remember, you know, listening to Patrice make bold claims about men and women. Right. In a way that I'm like, I think that there's, you know, there's more nuance in like, I don't think that all that all relationships between men and women are as as he paints the picture. Of course, he's talking about a limited subsection. Uh, He's talking about heterosexual relationships. He's talking about his own experiences. Uh, You know, maybe he's certainly he's seeing outside of himself, but he's seeing it through his filter. And but he's making a claim, as many comedians do. I mean, the classic men are like this and women are like this. Right. And like that. I mean, I think that uh, Patrice's stuff about, you know, his work on race is so powerful and so poignant and so beautiful and almost unparalleled. And his stuff on gender. I'm like, uh, I'm I'm fascinated by the man that he is specifically. And if he told like and he did tell personal stories as well. And those right. spoke to me more than like the broader generalizations. But Same. so for Berbiglia, like I feel like he almost always is like he would never be like women are crazy. He would be like, I had this experience with a particular woman and let me tell you everything about that. And in that way, like the personal became universal because regardless if, you know, whatever your gender, like you may have had a partner who you're like, whoa, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. the case is, or maybe you were that partner. But, and so I always, I love when people talk specifically about themselves because that, I mean, because we're always all we're all doing that no matter what, like even if I remember seeing a cartoonist once an artist say like every portrait, every picture is a self portrait, even if you know of a kind, Mm. you know, like if you're drawing a building like that's still that's yourself doing that yourself is in there. And so I think 
even even Seinfeld, you know, Seinfeld, who is one of like the least talks about himself personally comedians that there is uh, like and that says something about himself. You know, right. he we know something about Seinfeld, the person by how little Seinfeld says about Seinfeld, the person like we don't know everything. I'm sure like his life at home is completely, you know, he keeps it private or as private as he keeps it. And that's that's his his prerogative and his business. And and so I guess back to like Chris Rock, like when he's sharing about his own life, like mm -hmm. that is meaningful. That yes. is and in a way that only truly only he can do that. Only he has insight into who Chris Rock is and how Chris Rock sees the world through this Chris Rock filter. And then sometimes when when he or Patrice or anyone, any if any self-included, I'm I'm generalizing now. Like I can only share, you know authentically through my own filter and anytime we're like we see patterns out in the world like it might be saying more about us than the actual objective reality of what's out there in the world because we don't have access to what's out there in the world we only have access to our own experience of what's out there in the world right and that's that's always been i think what you're i think what we align in is the fact it's almost like a taste thing like for me, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, if you if if Patrice talks about when I was a kid, this X, Y and Z happened. And Berbiglia is already there for them because he will make a one man show out of it. He will mm -hmm. make a film out of it. And with a, a, a Marin type, it's like, OK, yeah, I want to see that. Like, I want to I want to see that because one is a taste thing and it's one that one thing that I'm exploring with myself as a as a comic as an as an artist mm -hmm. you know you and i think to me those are the things that are most compelling i i'd say um more than the generalizations of men are this or women are like yeah. this instead of just saying this is what happened to me because i remember that weekend working with Marin. i've said this hundreds of times on the show but where he just kind of talked about his day before he really got into his material. And I said, and I think we were talking backstage and he's like, he said, yeah, why don't you do that? And I said, well, cause if I do that, I'll mess, I don't want to mess up your show. I'm, I'm just emceeing. And he's like, Oh, I'll just try it. And then I, I tried, I talked about that the day earlier that day going to Walmart to get, vitamins for my mother and it actually got a, a few laughs and he was like how does that feel and i was like oh that was pretty good and i was too young to uh, young of a comic to kind of put that together but more recently i i was doing a show in pennsylvania i went to this great mexican restaurant and i riffed on how great that restaurant was on opening up my set you know just before i got into the material you know just just things like that trying to be efforts to try to be more present and lucid on stage to not just be so robotic and here is my material this is what i you know to just go in and and be give them more of an experience you know oh yeah it's it's really interesting because uh here, here's a funny story uh mm -hmm. I, I i think this I'll, here's a story i don't want to oversell it you know okay but uh paul f Tompkins is one of my favorite comedians are you going to talk about freak wharf uh no i don't think i am okay all right because that's i i was thinking about that too but go and i'll 
Okay, but so I think that Freak Wharf is the first album of his where he does include like the riffing that he does at the top of the show as part yes. of the album. Yes. Um. So I remember, you know, the first album that he put out is called Impersonal, and it was, yes. you know, he's like just just these perfect constructed bits, like no mm -hmm. riffing, just like you know, very well orchestrated, beautiful little joke symphonies, you know, and. Uh, if I think Freak Wharf was probably the next one, um, I don't know if there was one in between, but uh, I saw him live at Comics in New York sometime. I moved to New York in 2008, so it's probably around, you know, somewhere between 2008 and 2012. And Paul F. Tompkins had at that point started like if he was doing an hour, he would riff for mm -hmm. anywhere from, I assume, five minutes to 20 minutes, depending on his mood and the audience. Right. And it was going great. It was like he was at least 10, 15 minutes in really crushing uh, with material with not material. And he had brought with him like pieces of paper like that. He was he would refer to every once in a while. He would like point to them on the stool and be like, man, eventually we're going to have to get to the material, you know, and right. But and then continue on these, you know, virtuosic riffs that pretty much everyone in the room was entertained by, except for one vocal person who one time when they when he like made a joking reference to the material, he's like, when am I going to get to this material? And then somebody was like, please do. Oh, <laughs> and <shit. laughs> it was so funny that it seems like, you know, it was Saturday night. It's at mm -hmm. a comedy club. A lot of people are there are Paul F. Tompkins fans, but some of the people there are just at a comedy club on a Saturday night. And mm -hmm. my impression of their, their plea for him to get to the material was as if, they didn't understand that part of what he was doing already was a funny show was right. part of it was yeah. his art that he wanted to share and that so many people were enjoying like if if he was dying up there if he was just doing riffing to crickets then i could understand a person being like what are you doing but it was so fascinating to see a person be like can look i paid for a comedy show we have a babysitter at home and you're telling me <laughs> you haven't even started quote unquote the show you know yeah. and i love i've been talking about this a lot recently i love having a plan and also being able to comfortably and enjoyably deviate from the plan like if Same. i never if i never get to all of the jokes on the paper like that's okay you know and it's even better sometimes most of the times it is it, yeah that that's funny man because that's the thing freak wharf the reason i thought because that was the first time as a young comic i started in 09 so i would so ah. hearing that album was like holy shit like are you fucking kidding me and then he says oh i guess we're gonna have to get into the material now <laughs> all right and he does it and it's a it's a great album but it, it was just like the and in and, and that weekend with Marin, it's just one of those things like though that's a moment that as a i'll never forget unless i get alzheimer's but it was just you know like when a jedi teaches you something a skill and you're not ready for it yet you get you get it and it's like okay you're 
that's that's a marker that I need to get to. Or just like in an RPG, you see somebody that already has that skill and you have to work to get to get the experience to do that. And to have those little moments where you're riffing and you get this visceral, it's an experience you'll never they'll never you'll never have it again. The- yeah. You know, uh here's a a funny thing I think. I'll just I'll I'll introduce everything that way. I think this will be funny or interesting sure. or meaningful or here's what I want to say. Uh I remember listening to uh, Pete Holmes's podcast with, I think, uh, with Dimitri Martin. I think it was Dimitri Martin on Pete Holmes's podcast. Okay. And they were talking about, I don't know if they mentioned Paul specifically, but the Mm -hmm. very concept of like, oh yeah, Paul, like the, let's say they did. They were like, Paul put out an impersonal album, an album called Impersonal of all Mm -hmm. the material he wrote and performed before he really got personal. And like, they saw that as an evolution and Pete like felt that way as well. And you Mm -hmm. see like Carlin was like that, you know, like more like, you know, just jokes in the beginning that, and then later being like really opening up and being like, this is what I care about and think about and really feel as valuable and i the the impression that i got was pete asked dimitri like have you ever thought like that you will someday do you know like more personal shows Mm -hmm. and dimitri was like i actually did that before like i went to uh he's like i went to the edinburgh fringe fest uh, a few years and you know you got to do a new show every year so he's like i did talk about my life a lot and i i i did do some personal material and he's like and i find that i prefer uh what i do now i prefer like creating these you know these little uh Mm -hmm. these joke puzzles these uh cool little art pieces that are mine and mine alone to do like so in a way also like the self-portrait like that it's very dimitri martin and so like it's not to say that of course that talking about your day or uh you know mining your social experiences for material is the only way or the best way or the more evolved way but i will say this i've in the past couple of years opened for Dimitri a few times uh, mm. and I've enjoyed doing it. And at the top of the show, he very frequently will, before he goes into his material, just ask the audience, is there anything you want to talk about? And sometimes people will say things and then he will riff in very funny ways uh, in response to their questions or ideas or things that they say. And I'm like, wow. Like, I mean, he has the skill. He's a, yeah. a good, uh, competent comedian. He's a, a very funny comedian. And so he's, and he's choosing for the bulk of his show to do the show that he has curated. He's like, right. I, I, I came up with this and here it is, which is all to say, like the thing that Marin told you spoke to you eventually like i remember the same thing like i remember having a conversation with matt ruby uh good good friend and funny comedian he's on the pod Mm -hmm. yeah years ago i remember telling him that like probably just after i moved to new york you know like maybe less than 10 years in comedy i'm like doug stanhope's one of my favorite comedians and i remember him saying like well what why do you not do what doug stanhope does then and i'm like oh i mean like because he does it and i don't like, I don't think I don't want to be Doug Stanhope. Like, I want right. to be me. And I think that we all get to be uniquely ourselves. And also, I do think that, like, now I am doing, you know, as you grow, you become hopefully more and more yourself and right. who yourself is and who you, what your voice is and what you do on stage and what you care about and what you decide to do. That gets more and more honed in in whatever direction you go. So hopefully we're all becoming, you know, m- 
better versions of our best selves that we can be in a moment uh, on stage right? Uh, and, and in life in general. Uh, but you, we all get to decide. It's sort of like sometimes a movie will, or like I've read this about like stories, you know, like the way I think George Saunders, an author I love a lot and follow on Substack, talks about, like, I think it was him who was like, you write a story and then like at the very end, like, there's, there can be like a choice between what happens, like either like the, the character, the main character, like is victorious or they're not victorious or like, you know, it'll either be this or the opposite of this. But the point is that, that there is this arc. And then, so the arc in your story is like the arc Marin, if you will, uh, <laughs> he told you this thing yeah. and you, it, you weren't ready for it at the time. And like now you're ready for it and you have chosen to go in the direction of like oh yeah so now i will sometimes riff about a mexican dinner that i had and yeah. i yes i have i have uh taken in your advice mark marin i am now manifesting it and another way you could go is you could have had that experience and then the next night be like you know I actually want to get into my material right away because that is what I think will be more valuable to me right now. And, or maybe yeah. some combo, maybe some, you know, overlapping interlocking version where you're loose and present and not robotic, but still like just doing that with your material. Like you, right. you get to decide. That's true. Yeah. It's very much so. I mean, cause it's, it's like you having the, the training wheels, you're, you're going without the training wheels, you might fall a couple times, but then you eventually learn how to ride. I've had moments like that, but it's just kind of like you want to get to the level where, yeah, we could do 15 or 20 of that just being, you know, free and lucid and and doing the job of killing, doing well, getting the laughs, all that stuff. So it's 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 a thing that I just um, I don't know. It's like we get that invincible star in Super Mario Brothers, I think. <laughs> or just whatever yeah. one of those the one of those um video game references but yeah it's it's definitely something i strive for one thing i wanted to talk to you about i didn't have too many notes or anything uh but so when i uh, so when i saw you at the show i had my our our uh mutual friend rod morrow was there and he was my guest and i said you know mike kaplan's going to be here and he's like oh shit oh great you know so he was excited to see you and we were talking about that that show in particular, stick a pole in it. Uh, it's so it's such a it's a fun show. Those people are mainly there for the dancers. Yes, for the listener, of course. Yeah, stick a pole in it is a show that uh, alternates comedians and pole dancers. Yes, uh, not strippers. Nobody takes off their clothes. They just come out. Uh, dressed however they wish, often scantily clad, and uh, they do incredible feats of acrobatics uh, to music with a pole that is on stage. And it all, it often seems like the comedian is just there to be like, well, they got to wipe down the pole, so here's yeah. let's talk while that's happening. <laughs> uh, and it's hosted by Dan Goodman, and uh, well, it's hosted by Joanna Ross and, and Dan Goodman, and it's a, it's a fun show. And it's like I've noticed like I've had every time I've been there, I've had fun. And it's it, it's a cool it's one of those cool shows where it's like New York City in a basement. What is that? East Village. 
Yeah. And it's like it's New York and it's fun. It's hip. But they're there for those 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 dancers. And it's like. I think Rod comment, I'm like paraphrasing. He's like, he's like, yeah, Mike just went in there and did his thing. Like, he's like, Mike just went in there. He didn't like, you didn't, you didn't like, uh, you didn't alter your, your act or anything. You just went in, did your thing, got your laughs and left. (laughs) And, And there's, there's one thing that people don't talk about enough in comedy Everybody always talks about, oh, cancel culture, woke this, woke that. You got to be fearless. There's a there's a form of fearlessness that I think you have that isn't talked about that I, I that I commend. It's commendable where it's like. I'm going to I'm going to do what what I have. What I have down, what I'm supposed to do tonight, what I set out for myself, I'm doing it and you can either get on the bus or not. You had a great set. But it was still like you just it was just like, no, nope, I'm go- I'm going through this. I'm doing this tonight. What? Uh, how do thank you, you? Yeah. What? How did you how do you get to that point? I feel like I'm I'm there, too. But like how? but you because you're more of you're of a you're a, more of a vet than me. How did you get there? Well, first, thank you for your kind words and thank you for uh, for seeing me and uh, and identifying exactly that I am more fearless than anyone who complains about wokeness and cancel culture. Um, Truly, I here's a I'll I'll come come at this a roundabout way. Uh, When I started out in Boston uh, doing comedy in the early 2000s, like. I started out at a place called the Comedy Studio, which was right across the street from Harvard and Cambridge. A lot of students came there. It was like a very sheltered, uh, in a good way to start out, environment. I actually, I refer to it sometimes as like the comedy womb. Mm. And uh, it's a good womb. You know, who books that womb, you know? And (laughs) (laughs) And also, so there were like really nice, you know, attentive, comedy savvy audiences like, uh, Eugene Merman started at this place, you know, okay. and, you know, he he's a wonderful comedian. And also, uh, like he is uh, like every comedian. I think every comedian is a particular flavor. And mm-hmm. also we've all had the experience. I Most comedians have had an experience of being in front of an audience that is not into us. Right. Like and that's important. Uh, it's important to have both. It's important to have supportive audiences, and it's also important to have audiences that maybe you do have to try to win over, that you have to, you know, do your thing and hope they like it or figure out how to do your thing for people who might not like the way that you do your thing. But Boston was wonderful in a way because, you know, half of it, like the Cambridge side of the river, uh, to generalize, had like MIT and Harvard and these, you know, uh, some alt rooms that were really cool and rewarded the the comedy savvy uh, uh, fan. And then, you know, across the the river, there's the the Boston side of things, the 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 Times Square ish Faneuil Hall area where sure. like sometimes a hostel sends a bunch of people that don't speak English to the show. And there's a bunch of tourists there and there's bachelorette parties and bachelor parties and goodwill hunting extras, you know, and people getting into <laughs> fights and drinking on the street, you know, and and 
the best. I remember Brian Kylie, a wonderful comedian who wrote for Conan for many years, who started out in Boston. He's like, I always knew I had a good joke if it worked in front of both of those audiences, you know, right. in front right. of the comedy nerds and the people who beat up the comedy nerds. Right. <laughs> and and so that was yeah. a, a good environment to start out in, especially because, like, you know, I I grew up, you know, more more of a more of a nerd than a person who gets beat up. Uh, no, I mean more. Yeah, I was a nerd that I didn't get beat up a lot, but I was the kind of person who you think would. Um, <laughs> I wasn't beating up people. That's what I'm saying. Sure. And uh, not for I mean, for lack of trying, but also for lack of uh, ability. And <laughs> I took Tai Chi for a little while so I could move out of your way very slowly. Um, so there were like some rooms in Boston that intimidated me and rooms in like the suburbs of Boston. Like there was this room in Brockton, Massachusetts, like uh, maybe a half hour South of the city. And I remember going there and like, Oh, do you know, it's just the opener. I'm doing like 10, 15 minutes and I'm scared. I'm scared mm -hmm. of like, of failing of, of the people not liking me. What were these rooms like? Were they like the restaurants? You're in the back room of a restaurant and all that. Uh, some of them were. This one in particular was. There's a club in Boston, like downtown, uh, called Nick's Comedy Stop. I've heard and, of it. Yeah. yeah, Nick's Comedy Stop. I don't know if it's still there, but they had a Nick's Comedy Stop, Brockton. So it was like okay. a dedicated comedy room. But mm -hmm. still, I think like the best set I ever had there was when a night that like the football playoffs were on and the Patriots were in it. So all the football fans were not at my show, but. <laughs> Uh, that said, I, there was like a, a turning point where I think I was scared. And so that would translate and the, you know, the people wouldn't trust me. And so mm. they wouldn't respond the way that I wanted them to. And that would be like a self-fulfilling, you know, uh, prophecy that a cyclical, uh, sadness for both of us and until one day, like you know, year, few years in, I wrote a joke about drinking. Like I wasn't setting out to do it. I wasn't like, this is what's going to connect with these people. But I wrote a joke about drinking and I, I was like, maybe they will like, maybe they'll like this joke. Like mm -hmm. the idea that I had of the people who didn't like my, you know, my cute little wordplay or whatever, whatever it was that I'm like, do you, you don't like my jokes about being vegetarian or vegan? You know, uh, <laughs> but what about alcohol? You, you like alcohol, don't you? Yeah. You like this alcohol joke. All right. And whatever it was, either they liked the joke and that gave me confidence or just the confidence that that it was like a placebo i'm sure that i'm like i went in there and i'm like i think i can do this now mm. and and so having had that experience uh with that particular audience and then audiences in general like i'll i do my best to not prejudge an audience and i'll say this to say like i don't always succeed and i feel like the first time i did the the stick a pole in it the combo pole dancing comedy show right i i went into it like wondering like will this go well will are the people here for comedy at all are they going to listen to me or they they would they want to just be like hey let's have another pretty lady doing the dancing that we'd rather yeah. see and so i remember I've, I've done it a number of times in the over the years and probably the first time i, I think it went it went at least fine to, you know, very good every time. And so the more that I've done it, the more I'm like, people are people, you know, like, yeah. and kind of, I feel the way I've said this, I wonder if I've said this to you, 
when when starting out in comedy, you know, going to open mics, not knowing how to do it, not knowing what will work. Uh, it's kind of like timid. I was timid and like in intimidated. Uh, that's fun. I never thought about that. <laughs> timid is right in intimidated. Uh, somebody made me timid. And and so I would I would essentially instead of telling jokes, it felt more like I was asking jokes like mm. that's my assessment of it, like this joke. And the audience is like, you tell me, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And so I think that there was some dynamic of that, like in any new situation, like if we find ourselves in front of, you know, an audience full of maybe people who don't look like us, uh, like, I don't know, demographically by yeah. age or by, you know, culture or whatever sure. it might be, you know, like if even even in front of sometimes like if I perform for I did a show at Stand Up New York around Christmas for all Jews and a lot of them were like, you know, more practicing Jews than I and mm -hmm. like I'm Jewish, but I'm not as Jewish as they. And so I'm like, right. are they going to connect with the thing that I have to offer? And the I mean, the good news is like it doesn't matter because all we can do is do the best version of what we can in the moment. Right. Uh, which and being worried about it almost never helps. Like I remember I did a show once in, I, it might have been in Kansas City because my girlfriend's family lives there. Right. And my girlfriend, like I did a bunch of shows at this club and one of the shows didn't go as well. And I was like, yeah, I wonder what happened with that audience. And my girlfriend was like, I think that you she's like lovingly, if I may oh, offer. Shit. Yeah. She's like, I noticed that you did a little riffing up top and it didn't it didn't hit with everyone and i think that you then sort of turned inward and like i think she's like she told me that i didn't talk i didn't turn to face half of the audience so that half of the audience that might not have laughed at like one or two riffs i was like well i guess they don't like me you know so i'll i'll face the other side but then that half of the audience then becomes you know disconnected and wow. then they're they're talking a little bit and so like i i thought it was them, but, and it was some combination of them and me. And I neglected in that, in that evening to take into account. Oh yeah. Like I'm a large part of the equation, uh, of how the show I'm like, probably right. maybe the largest, you know, like it's, it's, it is a balance. It's a team effort. Sure. Like the, the audience has to be there for it, but the comedian has to put it there for them. And so now sometimes we joke about, like if I have a show, she'll be like, remember to be hilarious and arrogant, you know, and well, yeah, That's and so that is now like for for almost every show that I do now, like, you know, I've done when I was on America's Got Talent, I was live at Radio City. It was like streaming to millions of people mm -hmm. like in that moment. And it wasn't my best set. And I'm like that, like almost any other show is not that any other show. Like when people are like, Oh, wow, I can never get up there. I'm like, Oh, like getting up there for me, for the most part is like, almost like not doing anything, you know, I mean, on some level, right. it's like the difference between doing it and not doing it. Like there's no, uh, as far as I know, there's no substantial eternal consequences to like if that set at at the show that we were at didn't go well well then i would maybe you know be sad about it for a little bit think about it for a day do another set the next night and hopefully like i had a set that wasn't perfect last week and i'm like oh i'm okay now like i yeah. it sort of sticks with me uh for the evening for the next day and 
then then it becomes a funny thing, like which I feel like is the beauty of comedy. Right. Uh, to be like, you know, even like I remember starting out at open mics, you know, you tell a joke. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, I would develop the skill to be able to be like, well, wasn't it funny? At least that I thought that that would be funny. You know, the the saver. <laughs> right in the moment to be and you can't do that all the time you can't make i mean sometimes you can like andy kindler has made a beautiful career out of uh like commenting on his jokes uh that didn't go well and and it's a good skill to have and we can all do our version right. of that but uh yeah so i i do think that the fact the the fact really is that i i am not afraid of most shows not going well and like there's a young comedian that told me once he's like, I just I've only done a couple open mics, but I'm just scared. I'm like, what are you scared of? I'm like, I'm scared it's not going to go well. I'm like, well, good news. You don't have to be scared because fear is about the unknown. And you can be sure that it's not going to go well. Like you, you have to have it not go well. You have to be bad to get better. You can't right. just get better without being worse. It doesn't even, it's like having right. a heads without a tails on a coin. Like you, if you want to improve, like the worse you are, the more you can improve. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I do think, uh, and a cool thing is like, there's so many, I'm sure that you've had a show that you come off stage and you're like, I could have done better. And then the audience, so many people in the audience are like, that was beautiful. That was great. That was hilarious. And they didn't see the show that as you perceived it, they yeah. saw the show as they perceived it. There's a quote that I love by uh, a saxophonist, I believe named Charles Burns. He says, it is the artist's burden to know what might've been like, hmm. if you know, if you're like, I think I did a B plus, but you know, that compared to thousands of other shows, these people are seeing you for the first time. And they're like, that is great. Like you are good. And so just being aware of that, like, especially going into a situation <laughs> as opposed to prejudging it, if I can avoid that, be like, well, I'm going to go up there. Also that night in particular at that pole dance comedy show, I had just had an experience, uh, a, a conversation with my mom about the movie magic Mike. And I was like, super excited to tell this audience yeah pole dance watchers exactly a, a funny story about uh exotic dancing that just happened in my life and i have one other one other aspect that i i would ha be happy to share but i'm also aware that i've been uh jawing for a lot well that, that, that's what podcasting is for but uh, that actually happened with on that show because i i'd gone up first and I thought I did fine. I said, I said, ah, I could, it could have been better. They could, they could have gave me a little bit more. And then I'm, I'm sitting, I go back into the other room. Cause there was no room in the showroom and Katie Hannigan sitting back there. She said, how were they? I was like, oh, they were all right. And she said, they seem kind of tight. And I was like, oh, they're okay. And then, so I'm sitting back there for most of the show. Um, and people, these people are going to the bathroom and these women are going to the bathroom and they see me sitting you know, sitting over there and they're like, oh, good job. Really loved your set. I was like, oh, really? I'm like, okay. I could have thought because because for me that night, I was like, oh, it went fine. And uh, I got it. I did a new bit that I wanted to do. And I said, oh, this has legs. So I felt good about the set, but I didn't know that they liked it as much as they did. Totally. It, so this is one of those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, every once in a while, I'll have. Uh, a, I'll remember a set different than it actually went because that's how memory works. But mm -hmm. it could be that 
I might think a, we we might think a whole set was not good because one line didn't work like we yeah. wanted it to or thought it should, even though the rest of the set was like as good as anything that you've ever done. But you're like, oh, that one or I forgot to do something or some one nagging thing, you know, and yeah. on the converse, sometimes I'm like, that was an amazing set because one new line was riffed and then i listened to the rest i'm like oh that it was fine but you know it's yeah. we're we are unreliable narrators of our own experience that's that's fascinating to me because i think you're right because that that's because i always think the best set that i had was 2015 in carmel new york at mm. this place called arts on the lake where i closed out this show and i was just riffing and then one of my friends from undergrad came they were across the lake she brought her her husband and like they're like oh we i didn't know you were gonna be here we're just gonna come and it was like a random thing they got she got to see me crush and uh it was just like crazy and i said what did i do that day and that day like somebody put me onto this new band and they said you got to listen to this album and normally for me it's just like hip-hop all before shows just straight hip-hop and to get me to get my mind ready and then i listened to this band it's like these this Aust this band called hiatus coyote who oh, yeah. um, i like those guys yeah they're, they're i love them and and they put me on to them i was like oh my god this is so great like it was choose your weapon was the album their second one and i was just like oh i gotta start doing that and uh i don't think i ever i've had i've had good sets and everything but i don't think it's been that good then that was what what is seven eight years ago <laughs> I mean, also, tr have you ever? Do you still have like the recording of that set, or it's somewhere? Yeah. It's uh, it's somewhere. It's uh, three or four phones ago, maybe. And and I, of course, I wasn't there. I haven't heard it, but I bet yeah. that like our standards for ourselves change. Like, I'll, here's a my one version of that. I did a set probably like ten years ago, give or take mm -hmm. a couple at a place called Motor Co. in Durham, North Carolina. I've heard of it. It's, it's more a like cool, a rock I, club, right? 100%. It is a rock yeah. club. Uh, the logo looks like an upside-down Wonder Woman symbol and because <laughs> uh, it's an M. And I've been there maybe three times, uh, approximately. I think three, three, maybe four. And it's a cool place, a cool indie room. And I remember uh what this whatever year it was around 2013 i had just started getting to like perform at places where they were booking me for being me you know mm -hmm. and like all the people there were there to see my show it wasn't a comedy right. club if you were there you were like i'm going to see the mike kaplan show tonight right and, and i remember feeling like i did like an hour and 20 minutes and i was wow. like you know working on material and riffing a ton of new things and felt like you know in the pocket like it was just that it felt so good and i remember listening back to the set you know months later uh you know i sort of had a backlog and i remember when i listened to the set months later i was like it was good but one thing that i noticed was uh the all of, i was like i wonder i'm gonna listen to all the riffs and jot down all the new things and i'm gonna have so many more new jokes yeah. and i listened and there were things that i riffed that night but by the time i was listening back i had already incorporated so many of them into the jokes like which okay. is it's good that's the way i want it to be but there was no way for me to have the experience that i had the i couldn't have the same 
feeling that I had doing it because discovering something new is different, feels different than revisiting something after you've already like, it'd be like at a surprise party. You're like, wow, surprise. And then like later in the party, somebody says surprise to you. And you're like, yeah, that's not as surprising mm-hmm. anymore. But remember when you were surprised before? I do remember, but I remember it, but I'm no longer surprised like right. I was. Right. And and so I feel like maybe you will also have that experience if you listen back to that set. I don't mean to take away anything, but just because you have been advancing in comedy for a number of years, yeah. your capacity, like probably what you think of as a great set has uh, increased. And mm-hmm. that set will probably, I'm sure that set will, will be, a, it was a good set. And maybe it is. Maybe there will be one set that's the greatest set that you ever did. And that is uh, that set. But I do also think that, you know, there's always room for growth, especially because, you know, I feel like it's like that with a joke. Like, you know, if you have a new joke that you're really excited about, you're like, yeah, just when just when it starts working consistently, you're like, yes, this I'm going to I'm going to like I have a, a thing that I've been closing with newly since for the past month, like a thing mm-hmm. happened a month ago. And I was like, this is funny. And I started telling it and people laughed. And I was like, I think I could close, you know, showcase sets with this joke. I think I right. could. And I and I have and like eventually I'll just be like, eventually I'll be like, well, that's just a joke that I have. That's just a right. good joke that I have that works instead of this brand new, beautiful surprise mystery bonus joke. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, because the thing that that we were touching on like 10 or 15 minutes ago about the fearlessness to just consistently be yourself. It's something that I pride myself in as a comic. Like I'm good if I'm in if I'm in South Jersey at one of these like uh halls like one of these like uh vfw halls vfw halls or whatever i'm not gonna change the material whether i'm there or at drum so it's like when you get something it's just like uh, it's like okay that that bit that bit worked in in uh at 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 the at drum at stick a pole because there's been times where i've had really good sets there where it's been like oh i found out something I tried something new there and I, and I use it. I'm not going to change. I, what am I trying to say? I don't change my material. I don't change who I am. So it's going to be the pretty much the same wherever I'm at, you know? Yeah. I mean, also for me, I don't know if I, and I feel like you may relate to this as well, but especially if you are aiming to be present, part of who you are, like we are always, ever so slightly changing you know like today right. we're one day older than we were yesterday sure we're hopefully one day better at comedy or right. more more yeah. attuned or whatever it might be and so like you know in the beginning when i was more of just a joke robot you know i would almost never address anything that you know come on i'd come on stage and i'd tell my opening joke because that's the thing that i knew would hopefully get the people on my side right uh, it's sort of coming from a place of lack you know a place a lack of abundance be like well i i need i need laughs so i know how to get these laughs i say these things and that's why i think you know the the marin way and the way of like it's fine to 
if you you know that you're going to get to the laughs, you know yeah. that you're going to get to the stuff. And in fact, like, so you may even be there already. Like, there is no other place. There's only, like, whatever you decide to do is the thing to do. Like, you know, you could be, you could be happy, sad, angry, grumpy. You could be, you know, whatever, you know, we have different modes. We have different moods. Uh, and they're all parts of who we are. But yeah, you're, like, it doesn't even, I don't even know what it would make sense like to be to be different. I guess I do. I mean, I was about to say, like, to come into the 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 pole dancing show and be like, all right, so I know that you're all here for this thing, but I guess I'm gonna do a different thing. And you know, if you're coming from a place of, you know, fear rather than you know, like love and self-assuredness, like so as long as you, you know, you love yourself and you love your comedy, then you you can do anything and whatever you do will be you. Here's a fun, sure. a fun thing uh, from you know Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols. I know the Sex Pistols, but I don't. Okay, know, yeah. so yeah, Johnny Rotten uh, was one of the uh, one of the main dudes in the Sex Pistols, and you know, classic, you know, punk uh, music forever. Like you know, one of the most iconic punk groups. And they had, I, I a friend of mine told me this story that uh, maybe like ten years ago or something, they had their music used in a commercial. Okay. Uh, and selling so, out man yeah and so that yeah. somebody interviewed them and they're like isn't that kind of not punk <laughs> and then johnny rotten says whatever we do is punk mm. so yeah uh, and i think that that's a very punk answer and a very funny answer and a cool thing to say and like because i mean the main thing is like yeah they get to do whatever they want and if that's what they want to like you can think whatever you want about them and sure you can uh if that if you <laughs> If you want to think that they've sold out, by all means, absolutely, it doesn't change, you know, who they are and what they do. And so similarly, like, as long as you're doing what you want, as long as you're doing who you are, like, then, like, you know, there'll always be people who we're not for, you know, there, right. there might be a person at a show. <laughs> I remember, you know, Joe List. Yes. Friend of the pod. Uh, yeah. yeah. Joe told me a story years ago that, uh, he was opening for like a big act at the Comedy Connection in Boston, like a 400, mm -hmm. 500 seat room. Uh, and he was destroying like he's very funny. And he was, you know, Saturday night or whatever, like yeah. just really, really doing it up. And like everyone was laughing, except there's one guy who's like, hey, he's a nerd and like a really weird thing and joe's like i didn't even like go to college you know but uh he's like i just have glasses you know it's like i don't even think you're, you're not even right and he like roasts this guy who's like the guy can't seem to understand he's like but we're all being you're all being taken in by this this ruse this facade yeah. this this nerd like what a, uh, such a weird story uh, of like look if the guy didn't like joe that's fine you know like 400 other people did like joe he was and jealous yeah, there was evidence that success in comedy was occurring, but so there'll always be people who we're not for, but I'm not going to perform for them because right. I'm not for them. I'm going to perform for me and that thus for the people that I'm for. Yeah, yeah. I want to close with this. I, I don't want to hold you too long, oh, yeah. but uh, I want to I'm. I'm starting the process. I'm in the process of just trying to work on material for late night mm. or trying to whittle it down. I'm trying to see if I can get on one of these shows before it's all over. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it's like 
it it doesn't mean the same thing that it meant maybe 10 or 15 years ago but still i think it's a nice exercise and it's a it's it's just something that i'd like to try do you have any advice on on just preparing submitting and then like going through just what what that process is like just i don't know sure. anything you can share yeah i'm happy to i mean even you know i did my first late night set in 2009 mm -hmm. and i'm very grateful to have gotten to do a number of them since and even when i did it you know i did the tonight show with conan was my first one and yeah. i think a some some millions of people a single digit number of millions of people watched it compared to like in the 80s you know tens of millions of people are watching the tonight show because right. there's not as many channels and it, it's just the landscape is different so i mean it's a wonderful thing that now there are so many opportunities like for people to just go viral on any number of platforms and build a career build an audience on your own you don't need uh just one gatekeeper to approve of you but right. i do also like the prestige factor like of course like like getting to do david letterman's show was you know even if I didn't get any bookings out of it, like to get yeah. to do that and to meet David Letterman, I understand yeah. uh, the, you know, the value personally uh, that that can offer. So I will say uh, on the subject of preparing, like whenever anyone asks me about like preparing a five minute set, be it for a late night or for like an audition for Montreal Comedy Festival or, you know, any showcasing at a club, like I find I mean, these are these are the things that I recommend, like in compiling, you know, go back through all your jokes uh, and answer the questions of like, which are the jokes that uh, have the maximum number of all of these characteristics? Uh, number one, you love them. Number two, audiences generally love them. Number mm -hmm. three, they are unique to you that, that or they're, you know, jokes that they don't have to be personal, like we're saying, but the jokes that only you could tell, like, you know, the most original jokes, jokes that, uh, that maybe do say something about who you are, you know, and like, I feel like there's different schools of thought of like, sometimes people like might have a whole like, you know, connected theme, like you could do if you have a bunch of jokes that all go together, right? Uh, then that can work. Or if you have just, you know, five minutes of your best one line jokes, I mean, oh, also the shortest jokes, like you definitely want to have uh, short in a short set, short jokes, because then you can have more of them, you can get to the laughs immediately. Uh, so yeah, and I then I mean, the basics of, uh, you know, put put the the bit one that does best at the end have the mm -hmm. one maybe at, that has like the quickest laugh at the beginning or has like the most introductory uh you know element to it at the beginning like like who are you and what do you want to say with this five minute set what do you want what do you say in your comedy like so what are what are the most meaningful uniquely personal funny you know crowd pleasing short jokes those are like the main uh, the main things that I look for when I'm writing a late night set, uh, and yeah, and that I know that uh, I think Amy Hawthorne, who used to book the New York Comedy Club, wrote like a uh, a piece on like what she recommends. That's a pretty I know that Matt oh, Ruby man. quoted it in his Substack, and so like just some other I don't remember all of the tips, but there's some other specific ones there, 
as far as submitting that i don't have as much uh knowledge into because that's like mm-hmm. a a moving target where there's different people right know, different people are booking the shows that i used to do now uh and so i don't have look I'm like, I can give you the email address to a defunct NBC, <laughs> you know, uh, booker from the Tonight Show 14 years ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, my manager has people, but like, I just wanted to know, like, just from your like what you thought, like, and then like w- when you book it or if you submit, OK, when you did the Tonight Show, was there a submission? And then they said, oh change change this take this out or uh yeah that's a good question so it's been depending on the show there have been yeah. a lot of different processes like yeah i was submitting tapes to letterman from like 2004 and i got to do the show in 2011. Shit. uh yeah. in the meantime i did the tonight show in 2009 mm-hmm. and then after i did that the letterman booker was like hey you know you could have done some of those jokes on letterman i'm like that's what i've been trying to tell you and <laughs> yeah uh yeah. and so with with the tonight show it was actually the the most streamlined because the booker reached out to me and was like i had had auditioned for a festival that he had seen me and he was like here's some jokes of yours that i like can you put together Mm. a tape for me and i was like can i put on other jokes that you haven't seen and he's like sure and so i sent him i sent him a tape he told me which jokes he liked uh i sent him another tape i and we we went back and forth a few times until he was like i think we've got the set and then it was just a matter of like some number of months until a spot was available. Um, there's been some shows like when I first did the late, late show with Craig Ferguson, mm-hmm. uh, I was invited to submit in uh, transcript form. I didn't even send them a tape. I just wow. sent them written jokes and they wrote me back. We like this, not this, this, maybe this, 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 this until I was like, yep, that's five minutes worth of jokes. And then they booked me to do the show. Um, and then other ones I've, you know, like Letterman submitted years over years and years, yeah. like maybe every six months I would have a, a different set and I would set it, send it to Eddie Brill, the booker at the time. And how would, long, how long would they be like 10 maybe or six? Or seven? Um, I would say for the most part close, uh, depending on the relationship, I would say, you know, maybe five to seven, like certainly okay. I'd say, you know, the sets are generally five minutes or less, you know, could be right. four fifteen, four and a half, could be five exactly. And so I think like maybe for the first one, you know, aim aim for around like not less than five, definitely, but right. uh, not too much more than six or seven, I would say. I would say in the five to seven, and again, this is speculative and I'm not an expert, but that is, and like some, if they ask you, uh, if you have a relationship with them or maybe your manager can find out, be like, what is the optimal like length of set to send? Like some of them might want, like, what do you foresee the set being? Send us the exact set that you think could be on our show. Mm-hmm. And so they might ask for literally four and a half minutes or literally five minutes. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a question for the individual booker of the individual show that hopefully your manager uh, could find out. What, the only other thing I'll say with respect to the Conan, the first Tonight Show with Conan set that I did, there was one joke that they were like, we like this joke. You can't say it this way on network television uh, mm-hmm. due to standards and practices. So can you change it? And the joke was uh, originally and the way that it is on the album. Mm-hmm. It was about how when I was a kid, I got called gay in high school 
because I was smart, essentially. Okay. And so I was like, basically, the bullies were like, oh, complete sentences come out of his mouth. Penises must go in. And... And they were like, we like the concept. Is there, but truly the thing that wasn't allowed on network television was the idea of genitals going into a body. And so I owe this one to uh, Julian McCullough, wonderful comedian and friend uh, who I was sharing this with. And he was like, what if you just said dudes must go in? And I asked them and they were like, that'll do it. There you go. Uh, so yeah, they're like, what, and what, what part could be any part of the dude, right? Could be an elbow, could be a shoulder. Like there's, as long as you're not explicitly stating genitals. Um, yeah, I've had Shane Moss, a dear friend of mine has had numerous conversations like this about his, like, you know, jokes that are just on the brink of, they're like, we'd love for you to do this, but you can't, uh, make the image of a, a finger going into another uh, like the whole yeah. to mimic, like, like you can't even pretend that a body part's going into a body part. Uh, so what can you do instead? But, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously you want to do jokes that, uh, can be said on television. And mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like topics like that is also has been a, a shifting landscape where, you know, on Johnny Carson's tonight show, uh, you wouldn't hear half of what you can hear tonight, you know, on like the late, late show or any of the late night shows that, that are there so yeah i mean start with who you are and what your best stuff is and then you know whittle it down cool yeah that's what i was thinking i was thinking i had some stuff that my manager is going to give took some notes and we haven't talked about it yet but yeah there's a chunk of like my act that's like that could possibly be whittled down that i think would just be like a good story based thing i think ted alexandro did it on Who was the last late, late show uh, guy? Corden or Cor- Ferguson? I yeah. think it was, I think it was Ferguson. Ferguson. Sure. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, about pet- toilet paper and yeah. this, that set. Yeah. That was a real, and it was just like one jokes within a whole bunch of jokes within one story. Oh, yeah. Like, I think yeah. if you can do that, that would be, I think that's a, a fantastic way to go. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate the advice, man. I don't want to hold you too long. I really appreciate you coming back on the show. Yeah, thank Uh, you for having me. Yeah, plug plug some stuff. You got a a new album out. Yeah, thank you so much. So the album uh, that is widely available now was previously available only on satellite radio. So I did record it some years ago, but it is now available to stream or download or listen or share wherever you get your comedy and or music albums and it is called live in between albums and you can also find all my other albums on uh those places those platforms and of course uh mike kaplan spelled the weird way that i spell it you can plug that in anywhere m-y-q-k-a-p-l-a-n on social media and that's my website and uh my podcasts are broccoli and ice cream and the faucet and i've got to get you on there as well at sure. some point soon and uh, I also do, I have a Substack newsletter. I just send out every week uh, a free one, and you can subscribe for bonus ones as well. And that's at mikekaplan.substack.com. I send jokes and thoughts and uh, meaningful things and silly things. 
And uh, so feel free to sign up. That's mikekaplan.substack.com. And uh, and if you're in Edinburgh or you know anyone who's in or will be in Scotland in uh, the summer, I'll be at the Edinburgh Fringe Fest doing my new hour show called Imperfect for the entire month of August there. And awesome. uh, I, I think that'll that'll do for now. So uh, and if anyone has an apartment that's uh, free in New York City, I'd uh, <laughs> love, love to stay in a free apartment. So uh, thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's uh, always a pleasure. Same here, man. Thank you for doing it. Everybody, thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you next time. Take it easy, everybody.